Good morning. It is wonderful to see you here this morning and greetings from Columbus Reformed Presbyterian. It was a privilege and joy for me to work and serve with uh, your elders, uh, several of them this week at our Presbyterian meeting, and I count them as uh, laborers and friends and fellow servants of Jesus Christ. And it is uh, good that we have our fellowship together as churches. Uh, we are going through the book of Genesis in Columbus, so if you would turn to Genesis 33, that's found on page 37, if you're using one of the church's Bibles. Just three points of context to help you get ready for today's reading. Uh, some of you may know the story quite well. Others of you may be uh, a bit fuzzy on what's going on in the life of Jacob, Genesis 33. So here you go, three points of context. Uh, one, uh, at the beginning of the Jacob narrative in Genesis, Jacob, the younger brother, stole the blessing from Esau, his older brother, and Esau promised to kill him. Uh, and as a result of this, Jacob at this point in the story, has been on the run for many years. So that's a point of context. Two, God had promised to bring Jacob home to the promised land. And the promises to God's people really centered on Jacob uh, for their life and future. And then the final point of context is that in Genesis 32, a terrified Jacob cried out to God, famously wrestled with God uh, in that narrative given the name Israel by God on the night before the encounter that we'll read about today, an encounter with a man who had promised to kill him more or less the last time they'd been together. So with those points of context in mind, let's hear God's word, Genesis chapter 33. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were four hundred men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servants. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God. And you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. So he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, 
let us take our journey. Let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his, ser- his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord and see her. And Esau said, Now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paddan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land which he had, where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Israel. This is God's word. Join me in prayer. Lord, would you be with us this morning as we come to your word, that you would teach us, that your spirit would work among us, and that we would grow in our understanding of, delight in, and conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, what do you think? Is Christianity about helping you sleep at night and live with some purpose before your death where it all ends? Maybe another way of phrasing the question would be, is Christianity palliative care for the soul? Final healing, ultimate victory, salvation won't really happen but I guess it does make us feel better to go to church, sing some psalms, and read our Bibles. Most of you this morning, I believe your answer to these questions is no. But questions like that operate not simply at a mental level, but deep down in our bones. Deep within us, does your heart this morning really believe that? No, Christianity is not just palliative care for your soul. Or what about your hands? Do your actions reveal a hopelessness about final salvation uh, that your mind says no to? And for some, maybe some of you this morning who, who don't truly believe that Christianity is salvation to you. Maybe you're there. Uh, Maybe to you, the Christian faith does look like palliative care for the soul. It is sort of a standard objection to Christianity that it is for the weak, for the failing in life, to tell themselves that they have something to hope in because life would be too hard otherwise. Is that what the Christian faith really is? Uh, And to those questions, our text today provides a kind of case study. In Genesis 32, 
Jacob sees that death could be right before him, and he cries out to God. And many in the world who may not believe might say, well, that's good. It is good to admit when you're weak and when you're helpless and uh, to cry out for some assistance. Toward the end of Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with God. And some might still say, well, that's a good thing to do. It's good to wrestle with the mystery of life or to struggle and uh, to see what might happen as you go through a struggle. But has all that crying out and has that wrestling just been palliative care before the inevitable death of Jacob and his family and the cessation of the promises of God? Is that what that has been? Now, Christians today don't have all of Jacob's exact promises for their personal lives. But actually, we have bigger and fuller ones than Jacob would have understood at that time. And maybe we would argue it like this. If Jacob's situation was hopeless, if all Jacob's wrestling and praying was was palliative care, our hope of being with God for all eternity would be hopeless as well. So what we look for then in Genesis 33, and what this text brings to us, is a deep, down-in-your-bones, no, to palliative care Christianity, and a glorious yes to the promises and grace of God that aren't simply promised, but meet fulfillments in the face of deathly enemies. What we want to see in this text this morning joyfully is three features of what God brings his people. Three features of what God brings to his people. Each of these offers us a kind of incomplete picture, you might say, of complete gospel hope. Incomplete pictures of complete gospel hope, three features of what God brings. Each of these features will require a sort of full scan of the text from beginning to end. The first is a providence that will lead you home. God wants Jacob back in the promised land, and his providence in this text leads Jacob home. A big picture look at Jacob's life from his birth to Genesis 33 is that he was born, he was born in the promised land, exiled from the promised land because of his sin, and then is here being brought home by the living God. So in Genesis 27 and 28, he is more or less kicked out of the promised land because of his sin of stealing that birthright from his brother. Uh, there are echoes there of Adam and Eve, and they're being kicked out of Eden. Uh, but then in Genesis 28, and the famous latter incident there, that his dream, uh, God tells Jacob, I'll bring you back. In Genesis 31, God, while Jacob was in Laban's house, God tells Jacob, now is the time. It's time for you to go home. And if you are uh, more or less flying a, a drone, you might say, above Jacob's life, just watching a kind of uh, above view, just looking down on his life as you watch all of these journeys, uh, what you would see down below you is a series of Berlin walls, more or less, that 
block his journey, that prevents his passage back to the promised land. And chapter after chapter, whether it's Laban or whether it's Laban's gods or other challenges that come before him, they are the, you find these impossible walls getting knocked down to get Jacob back to the promised land. But the one that's loomed in the distance all this time has been Esau, this impossible monster who had promised his death if Jacob ever came near. And as you're looking down on this text, then it it gives an insight into what's happening in Genesis 33. We uh, don't even need to get into all the details just yet. You you look down and you see these two men who who are supposed to be in some sort of uh, death match with each other. As you watch the text, imagine being there up in your helicopter, you see them come together together in some kind of hand-to-hand encounter. The words here to describe their encounter are similar to the language of wrestling. And if you're watching from a distance, you think, I am watching the death of Jacob here. And then to your shock, Jacob goes free. And look where he gets verse 18. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. That's a big deal in this text. He's back in the promised land. Verse 20, then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. In Genesis 32, Jacob gets that name Israel. And so at verse 20, you can legitimately say this is the first time in the Bible that Israel dwelt in the promised land, a providence that will lead you home. How much of Scripture is devoted to Israel's journeys in, from, and back to the promised land, and this is the very first time you see the purpose of God is to overcome any enemy to lead his people back to home. We're going to spend most of our time this morning on this relationship between Jacob and Esau and what's happening there. But this is more than just a text about human relationships. This is a text about a God who desires to bring his people home. This is a discovery of the God who sent Adam and Eve out of Eden, but what is in his heart even in that sending. His heart is to bring people back home. And just picture You should picture Jacob marching back into the promised land, surrounded by livestock and animals that's mentioned a few times in the text. And when you picture a man of the promises surrounded by animals there in the promised land, who do you think of? You think of Adam, put into that promised land of Eden, surrounded by the animals under his care. Jacob, in a sense here, is picturing mankind's walk back to Eden, surrounded by blessing brought in by the grace of God to the place of God. You know, if you uh, get used to uh, watching, uh, say, the films of certain directors or reading the books of certain authors or looking at the paintings of certain artists, you you recognize that they have a certain touch to them. You you know, you might say, a, a Van Gogh, you can see it from a distance. You don't even have to look at the name under the painting. You know it when you see it. Well, the touch, the fingerprint of God for the journey of his people in this world is that his providence would lead us home. It is not a kind of palliative care 
that leads us on this journey of life and then drops us off at death and uh, leaves you to your own from that point forward. It is a, not a palliative care. It is a providential care that will bring you all the way. So when Abraham goes down to Egypt, God brings him out and brings him home. How significant the text like this would be for Israelites dwelling in Egypt for 400 years. Does Israel ever make it home? Let's go read Genesis 33 one more time while we wait. Israel is sent off to Babylon, and then they come home. Jesus Christ leaves his heavenly home and comes to this earth, but then he ascends back to glory. And the, uh, the hope and promise then that believers in God start to internalize is that we will go home to the promised land of God, and there are no Berlin Walls, there are no enemies that will prevent the homegoing of his people. We cannot promise this morning, of course, whether or not you will ever go on a visit to Israel like Jacob did here. And maybe we, the best home we could think of is that maybe, you know, we'll be home for Christmas if only in our dreams. And uh, the reality is the Christian faith has a much greater hope than that that though we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, goodness and mercy will follow us, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Or Psalm 121, the one preserving Israel, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. He keeps us. He watches over us day and night. And as you this morning then watch Jacob make it home, your own soul should be strengthened to move away from ever thinking deep down that the Christian faith is palliative care and believing instead that it's a providential care. And if you're struggling this morning to believe that God will bring you to his eternal dwelling place forever, it would be a good thing for you to, to make a practice of reading and singing the homegoing stories of the Bible. Read the home going, read the book of Genesis and read all the times that God leads his people home. Read the other stories mentioned already this morning. Sneak in the life of David into your Bible reading and look for it there. Look at the thief on the cross going home to paradise. Sing Psalms like 23, 43, 121, 107. There would be others. We have a God whose providence leads us home. That's the first feature of what we see God doing in this text. The second thing we must see, and it's very prominent in this text, is a pardon that will raise you up. A pardon that will raise you up. Really, that first point, we've just gotten the big picture of this text of Jacob's journey, uh, but now we need to zoom in. We need to land that helicopter and get face-to-face -face with what's going on here in this struggle with Esau, this enemy who had promised to kill him. You see, as Jacob marches his way toward Esau, the thing that prevented him, in his mind, from getting to Canaan was his sin, his shame, and his judgments, or anticipation of judgments. And the reality is, Jacob was right about all three of those. He was a great sinner who had stolen from his brother. He did not deserve to raise his face up before Esau, and he had every reason to expect that judgments would come when he met him. 
And some of you this morning may be thinking, well, yes, God's providence leads good, faithful Christians home, but I am a massive sinner. Maybe you think that your record excludes you. You are like Jacob. The record is in your past, and there's no smudging it out. Maybe this morning you're almost ashamed to be among the people of God because you would think if they really saw what I was like, I would be forced to bow on my face on the ground and they would ask me to leave by noon. Maybe you're thinking about judgment that awaits you where you're thinking, I, I, I am here and I'm on two feet, but someday I'm going to pay for what I've done. And that kind of mindset can take us back to palliative care. We can think, well, it is nice to hear the nice singing of the Psalms, but it's just some care for me until everything gets exposed. Maybe you think, sure, Jesus is brought back home, or the likes of Paul, or the likes of my grandma, who would never say a curse word and has never missed church in her life. Of course, people like that can sing Psalm 23, but what about me? What about you? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been with Jacob as he lifts up his eyes and sees Esau? Now, an answer the world might give you if you're feeling like that is to say, well, those sins you're worried about, they're actually not a big deal. But that's not what this text says. The biblical answer would be to read your Bible even more closely. Let's just look for a few details that will help us interpret what happens here as Jacob comes up. To Esau. Jacob is the brother. He is the younger brother. Jacob is the younger brother who claimed an inheritance for himself and then ran away with the promise of that inheritance from his father's land. And his sin looms large over his life. And Jacob, as he comes back to the promised land, has given up the idea that he will be treated as a brother, but instead is just hoping he could be treated as a servant. That was his message in Genesis 32, 18, for example, uh, talking about going before Esau and just pleading to be a servant and seeing Esau as the Lord and, uh, in a sense, giving up the inheritance and just hoping for a servant's position and letting Esau uh, be that promised child. He's giving it back. And here you have this picture, Jacob's coming in the distance, and he bows down seven times, and there's this whole plan about all the family doing it as well. They're bowing down before Esau, just hoping for servanthood in Esau's house. And there are two key verses then that tell the whole story of what happens here. Verse 4 and verse 10. Verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Esau doesn't send a, a message on ahead that says, oh, I'm going to let him go. I'm not as mad as I used to be. Just tell him he can go through. I don't really want to talk to him. Esau runs to meet him, and Esau as we go through the text, it's clear you have this back and forth debating over who, who the children are. And what Esau is saying is, I don't, I don't want you. I don't want you as a slave. I'm calling you a brother. 
I'm calling you a brother. And as Jacob finally starts to process what Esau is saying here, verse 10, pleading that Esau receives the presence, because inasmuch as I have seen your face, it is as though I have seen the face of God. Can you believe it? Jacob looks at Esau's face and says, it's like I've just seen God's face. Has Jacob lost his mind here? Uh, Is Jacob the great exaggerator or deceiver here? It, It doesn't seem to be so. If you look at the context in Genesis 32, Jacob, the night before this meeting, he's scared to death, you know, picturing in his mind you could anticipate, wrestling and doing hand-to-hand combat with Esau. And then a man comes up to wrestle him. Some commentators have suggested that Jacob may have thought at first he was wrestling Esau there in the night. And at the conclusion of his battle with that man in the night, Jacob says, Genesis 32, 30, for I have seen God face to face and my life has been preserved. So there's Jacob the night before. A man runs to him, wrestles. He's the face of God and he's preserved. And in Genesis 33, a man runs to him, wrestles, embraces him, same kind of word, grabs him, but gives blessing instead of death. It's as if the same thing has happened again in Jacob's life. It is as though the same God who wrestled Jacob from the ground in Genesis 32 and offered blessing did it again, and he did it in the face of Esau. It is as though he had seen the face of God. God showed up to Jacob in pardon and forgiveness in the person of Esau. And the blessing and offer of forgiveness comes in this stunning and surprising way that the brother who would kill him becomes this demonstration of the love, presence, face, and kindness of God. God forgives the son on the run who is coming home. Now, as you hear that that's the story, some of you, uh, it's as though you're hearing a song, if you know your Bible. It's like you're hearing a song you've heard before. We had a, uh, a seat for my uh, newborn daughter, and as she would sit in it, there would be songs that would play. Many of you have probably had this, and there's one song on there that every time it plays, I think, I know that song. I've heard it before, but I can't pick it out. Where is that? And I'd be glad for any of you to come to my house and tell me what song it is, because I don't think I ever have figured it out. But have you ever heard this one? Two brothers... The younger one grabbed the inheritance and ran off. And as he wanted to come home, his message was that as he came home, all he could possibly be was a servant in the house that he had come from. No way he could be anything more. And as he comes home, one runs out to meet him and offers him love and kindness and says, you're not a servant, you're a brother. Some of you know it. The parable of the prodigal son most famous picture, perhaps in the Bible, of the extravagance, undeserved love of God. Luke 15, 20, the love of the Father. His Father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That is basically a quote of Genesis 33, 4. He ran He embraced, he kissed. 
in the parable of the prodigal son. When Jesus is trying to give a, a story, a parable, to help people like you understand the love of the Father, it seems that what he is doing is simply giving a, a riff, a play, a development, amusing on Genesis 33. The sorely offended, the sorely shamed, forsaken one runs and embraces the sinner and brings pardon and healing. Jesus would say, Esau is as the face of God to the sinner. Now, it's an incomplete picture of complete gospel hope because we do recognize in the sex that the two come together and then they, uh, they, they get split up a little bit. And we haven't experienced the full of the gospel in this text. But here's the message of Scripture to you this morning. That in Jesus Christ, the face of God comes to sinners. And Jesus would look at you as a sinner this morning not expecting to ever be able to be led home. And Jesus would run, embrace, and raise you up. This is our hope, to see the running God for us as sinners. Now, some of you this morning, you know your Bibles, and you say, I'm not going to let it happen. I'm not going to let Esau, I'm not going to let wicked Esau announce the gospel to me. It's too unsettling. It shakes me up a little bit too much. Well, this is the mighty power of God throughout Scripture. He can raise up evil King Cyrus and call him a type of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. He can put on the words of Pontius Pilate as Jesus is put on the cross. He can have put on the lips of Pontius Pilate the words, Behold your King. God loves to raise up accidental gospel preachers who announces grace even better than they know. And the goal here then this morning is not to extol Esau to you, but to extol the glory of the gospel hope of who God is when his face meets with sinners. In your journey to the promised land with all your sin and shame, God would come running to wrestle you off the ground to embrace you as you're there on the ground and instead of putting you to death, raise you up and call you a son or a daughter. In the old TV show, ER, wouldn't usually expect ER to bring gospel hope to us, but there's a, a famous scene, at least for many Christians, of a man who had failed in his life and was meditating on his sins as he had cancer and realized he's uh, approaching the end of his days, and so he calls a, a chaplain into his room, and he asks her, is atonement even possible? What does God want from me? And the chaplain looks him in the eye and says, well, we get to interpret what God wants for us. All she knows how to offer him is palliative care. Feel better about yourself and all that you've done. That's the best you've got. At this point, the man she's talking to loses his mind in anger and says, I need a real chaplain. I need someone who will look me in the eye and tell me how to find forgiveness because I am running out of time. 
Maybe you look at your life this morning and you think, I'm running out of time. And you better not be offering me palliative care. And the message of the scriptures is that God would come running. God would come running to the one grieved and wrecked by their sins and offer the grace of the gospel. Can you lift your head and see your father running in the distance? Can you see him? A pardon that will raise you up. We've seen that. We've seen the providence. We've seen the pardon. And maybe at this point we'd say, well, let's just stop there. That sounds like a good gospel message for us. But we need to see the third, which has this teaching function in the life of the church. And that is a pattern that will make us whole. A providence that will lead you home, a pardon that will raise you up, a pattern that will make us whole. Esau is this accidental agent of the love of the Father and the incarnation love of Jesus. And that pattern is there for the goal of the remaking, the reforming of human-to-human relationship that God meant from the beginning. In the beginning, mankind in perfect communion with each other, there the eating of the forbidden fruit, you see the the breaking begin even there in the garden. If you read the book of Genesis, brotherly conflict is everywhere. It's a repeated theme. Cain, the older, kills Abel, the younger. Ishmael, the older, mocks Isaac, the younger. Later in Genesis, the older brothers mock and uh, despise the younger brother, Joseph. You get used to this theme. It's a motif that continues. And then you read Genesis 33 and you, you do a double take. You blink and you think, wait, an older brother runs and forgives? This is the work of the gospel. That God, the God who brings us home, and the God who offers us his pardon, enables us then to live out his character in restoration one with another. And it might help you at this point to think about some comparison points to that famous parable in Luke of the prodigal son. The stories are not exactly identical. In the parable of the prodigal son, there is another son, the older brother. But it's clear from the text that the older brother represents the promised people of God. Israel, the sons of Jacob, the line of promise. And what that parable gives you is a father running to embrace and kiss and welcome and love the sinner, while the older brother has no forgiveness and wants a sinner to be treated like a servant. No run, no embrace, no kiss. And the message is Jesus gives that parable to everyone who would know the story of Jacob and Esau might go something like this. You, older brother, you, house of Israel, you, church of God, you don't even live up to Esau's standard. Esau, the brother that ultimately his line is rejected, he's better at forgiveness than you are. Ouch. Ouch. And how often the church of God needs this rebuke. How often we act like Cain toward Abel and not Esau towards Jacob. 
The story is often sold in uh, medieval church history of, uh, or of, of, in church history of, of Henry IV's controversy with Pope Gregory VIII. The details of the controversy aren't significant to us this morning, but in this tussle, Henry IV got in great trouble and opposition to Gregory VIII, and he came running in the, uh, for a great distance to, to meet with Gregory and to plead for his forgiveness. And the famous picture of church history is that Gregory stood on one side of his palace or castle, and Henry wept in the snow for three days. And the message from Gregory was, I'll pardon him, but I'll pardon him after three days of weeping in the snow. And so often our churches are like this. Maybe our marriages are like this. Maybe our college fellowship groups are like this. Maybe our brother-sister relationships are like this. We let people live in the snow on the other side of the door, at least for a couple of days. And we either find ourselves there weeping in the snow, or we find ourselves proudly looking over the one weeping in the snow as we peek through the window and think, well, it's comfortable here, and I hope they know what they did. And maybe you this morning, the place that you're worried about palliative care is maybe that's where you think your marriage is at, or that's where your church is at, or that's where your friendships are at. There's really no hope of friendship. There's really no hope of restoration. There's really no hope of reconciliation. There's no way back. It's too broken uh, to be restored. But the call of God in Jesus Christ is to see the Father running from the distance, to see Esau coming to his brother, and to recognize we live in a world of a God who encounters and kisses the sinner and raises him up. And so we are called to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If your marriage this morning is not living out real forgiveness, if your church is not living out real forgiveness, if you have relationships in your life where the ice has come in, read Genesis 33. And then go read Luke 15. And then go read Ephesians 2 read earlier. And then run and weep together. Run and weep together at what Jesus Christ has done for you and offering his forgiveness. And then live that out toward one another by his Spirit. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, a providence that will lead you home, a pardon that will raise you up, and a pattern that will make us whole. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your pardon. We don't come to you this morning because we've lived this out so well. We, we recognize ourselves in Jacob a great deal. And we thank you that you sent your son in your embrace of the sinner, that we might be raised up to your presence. So I pray that this morning, that if we don't know that comfort, that you would offer it to us, the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, if there are places in our life where we are more like the older brother in that parable, and unlike, shockingly, Esau here, 
would you offer us your forgiveness for that and lead us in the pattern of Jesus Christ in whom we pray. Amen. We're going to sing 130 Selection A. Psalm 130 is a confession of sin, and it's a confession of sin for all Israel. And so we will come to the final stanza, and you can think of Jacob, Israel, as you sing, O Israel, hope in the Lord, the Lord saves graciously, and Israel he shall redeem from all iniquity. Let's stand for 130A.